I'm Eileen Darling. And I'm Hannah Glaver. We used to work together at an evangelical church that held a hierarchical position on gender roles. A church that believed God had chosen men to fulfill the primary roles of spiritual leadership. This environment created some unique and significant challenges for us and the other women among us as we strive to pursue our respective callings. From wage gaps and androcentric hiring practices to sexist standards and marginalizing expectations. We've reconnected to explore and process our experiences as well as the systemic issues behind them. And hopefully we'll shed some light on why gender hierarchy can't represent God's best for women, the church, or humanity. This is Stained Glass Ceiling. Welcome back. Welcome back. We are back. We took a break. We took a sabbatical. But yeah, we're back. We've got some episodes planned. I almost said like great episodes planned. They're talking about some challenging things and stuff. So great as a weird word. But we've got some hopefully valuable topics planned. We have some special guests, Mm -hmm. which are going to be really Mm -hmm. lovely to share with you. Some wise words. We're excited that we get to be a part of this conversation that's very, we're very passionate about. And so we're excited to share that passion with all of you. Keep dialoguing with us. Keep giving feedback. Yeah, and we're excited for this next chapter, season two. Are we calling it yeah, season? Yeah, season two. Season two. Yeah. It was the wild summer of 2017 that made the admins speak up. Summertime was considered the off-season at our church, the much-anticipated finish line at the end of the Christmas through Easter marathon. Because of this, summer was also an out-of-office free-for-all. Pastors and directors on our staff took advantage of the slowdown to take sabbaticals, study breaks, and dig into their liberal amassment of paid time off. But this boon of rest largely omitted the church's administrative employees, an overwhelmingly female group. Admins earned less PTO annually than pastors and directors, and non-salaried admins needed to work as many hours during the summer as they did the rest of the year in order to earn their wages. Because of this, they became our most consistent summertime workforce. Also, despite what our colorful calendar of away notifications suggested, the work of running the church continued through the summer months. We had two annual all-church events, and this particular summer, the church also became deeply involved in Hurricane Harvey relief efforts in Texas and hosted a two-day conference for our lay leaders in early September. At the end of the supposed off-season, in the first fully attended staff meeting we'd had in months, the admins spoke up about what their summer had really been, a Herculean effort. The senior-level pastor who led the meeting listened quietly to the admins, and once the discussion had died down, he said, Thank you, admins, for bearing the brunt of the work at these events. You deserve our gratitude. I want you to get together as a group and come up with something we can do to say thank you. He suggested a list of one-off treats as possible options. A gift card, a nice dinner, an extra day off. That afternoon, the admins met and decided how to respond to this gesture. Perhaps with the heat of the grueling summer still on them like a sunburn, the admin's talk turned to a more enduring reward than a gift card. What could they really use? What would truly express their manager's gratitude for their hard work? The events debrief had scratched the surface of a few systemic issues plaguing the admin role, and these women were not finished discussing them. With a small pile of critical issues selected and gathered in the center of their caucus, it was settled. Instead of seeking a perk for their trouble, the admins used the offer as an opportunity to advocate for better working conditions. They turned the notes from their discussion into a written proposal. Kenya, this podcast's wonderful producer, project manager, and our guest today, was one of the admins in this group. I've asked her to read an excerpt from what would come to be known across our staff as the admin appreciation proposal. As an administrative staff, we are incredibly grateful to our leadership for the thought of looking for ways to express appreciation for our concentrated efforts on your behalf in putting together events, relief work, meetings, Sunday services, communication strategies, volunteer recruitment, situation management, decor, team management, retreats, systems, and the like. We do what we do because we love the church and we want to see it thrive. 
Over the past year and a half, there has been a marked breakdown in pastor admin communication and policies that would protect our ability to advocate for ourselves. Here are some specific examples of what we mean. Being a part-time employee with the expectation of full-time availability, being expected to complete work without being given adequate time to do so, being excluded from communication about decisions even when these decisions have a direct impact on us to perform our jobs, being given mixed and unreliable information about benefits and hours. The consequences of these neglected areas are deep and lasting. We all genuinely believe in you and trust you as our leadership. We are also agreed that you love us, but we perceive that you are unaware of the disconnect between our roles. We are in no way intending to be disrespectful and only desire to honestly bring attention to specific areas in which great improvements could be made. In light of these comments, the following actionable items are what would make us feel appreciated and valued while improving the overall health and strength of the church. An updated and easily accessible employee handbook that can be reliably referred to in matters of HR and compensation so that we can advocate for ourselves when necessary and know that we are backed by church policy, not just hearsay. A better system of communication between the pastors as a whole to the admin as a whole so we can fulfill the duties of our job with excellence. Seeing these changes would communicate that we are worth more than a nice dinner or a day off, but that we are worth keeping around because we are able to function in our roles sustainably. We see our job as ministry. We love our jobs. We love our church. We love you, our leadership. And we sincerely hope that what we have stated here is not only heard, but implemented so that our love can be expressed more effectively through a vocation of service. Very respectfully, the administrative staff. Days after the admins submitted their proposal, I arrived at our weekly pastor director meeting to find the pastor who had extended them the gratitude offer wearing a stony look on his face. I'm going to read you a letter from our admins, he told us. I have to admit that when I learned what this letter had to say, I got angry. I'll read it, and then we'll have a discussion about how to handle this situation. But before he began reading, he turned to me. Eileen, as someone who used to be an admin, I would like you to try to represent their perspective in this conversation. I don't know, I said. I haven't been in their shoes for over a year, and I can't claim to really know what their experiences have been since then. I looked at the people gathered around the table. There were some noteworthy absences. Our executive pastor was still on sabbatical, our HR director was on vacation, and the one associate pastor who may have lent a more sympathetic ear because his wife was among the authors of this proposal was still in Houston participating in hurricane relief. Our lead pastor was also on leave, but he rarely came to these meetings anyway. Reluctantly, in order to make sure the admins had at least one advocate in what was starting to kind of feel like a trial, I agreed to the pastor's request. By the time he finished reading the proposal, every face at the table looked serious. Some were clearly offended. I didn't understand why. The changes the admins were asking for seemed so reasonable and not even that difficult to implement. They don't know how good they have it, one of the pastors said, shaking his head. Several other heads nodded. Another pastor began to pick apart the proposal, speculating about which admin had put forth which comment. That thing about expectations of full-time ability sounds like so-and-so, he said, and the part about the employee handbook sounds like so-and-so. I cut him off as he tried to continue listing individual women. If the team has come together intentionally to express these things, I think the last thing we should do is try to single them out, I said. Our discussion never reached the point of considering the actual issues the admins had raised. We focused only on the pastor and director's feeling about it and the audacity of the admins to write it in the first place. About a week later, the day after he returned to work, our lead pastor sent an email to the entire staff. I'm calling an all-staff meeting for next Tuesday, he said. Clearly this week has surfaced some tensions among us. While we work to address these issues, I want to make sure we don't give the enemy a window to create discord among us. In light of this, I want us to have a time to pray with and for each other. At this staff meeting, which was moved from our usual conference room setting to the church's austere prayer chapel, only our lead pastor spoke briefly before shifting the bulk of our time into open, out loud prayer. He echoed the sentiments he'd written in the email, saying that the most important thing was to avoid disunity among us. 
As those so inclined voiced prayers that avoided or sugarcoated our disordered state, I stared at my hands, unable to join even in spirit. Afterward, I asked one of the admins, a pastor in training, what she thought of the prayer gathering as a resolution to what had happened. Prayer can be manipulative as a managerial tool, she said sadly. So Kenya, you were one of the admins who participated in the meeting where you guys decided to write that proposal, got those thoughts down, and then submitted it to essentially our church staff leadership. From your perspective, why did the admins write the proposal? What led to this? Yeah, it was a long time coming, to be honest. Everything stated in the letter had been true for years. This was, I think, my fourth or fifth year at the job. So all of our requests in the letter, they weren't new. Um, it's something that we had been experiencing for a long time. We brought them up before individually to our direct supervisors, to HR, to leadership, but the response was either very personally applied to that admin by their supervisor or not taken seriously or forgotten about. The thing that triggered the actual letter writing was an annual event that we led and managed every year um, for our volunteers and leadership. It was a very lovely and smooth event for everyone who attended, but it was a complete shit show uh, uh, behind the scenes. <laughs> so for me, I was just coming out of summer camps for weeks on end. There were, you know, baptism festivals. A lot of staff were out. So a lot of other staff who were still in town for the summer had to work extra hard and so by the time we made it to this two-day large annual event, we were all pretty burnt out. There were a lot of mishaps during the event, but the thing that stands out the most to me was dinner time. So we served all the attendees. We got back to the kitchen, the admins, and we looked at the admin who was in charge of cooking, and we looked at the admin who was accountable for the event, and we asked, do we get dinner? And they both kind of looked around, and they were both exhausted. And they said, well, you can have what's left, and you can either find an empty seat at one of the tables out there, or you can eat in the office. And I just had this moment of realization that they forgot about the admins and all of the planning for dinner time. And it wasn't a purposeful thing that somebody wanted us not to eat that night, but it was just... One of those things that um, felt very hurtful in the moment. So um, the next staff meeting, we had just a normal debrief of how the event went. A few of us, a few of us admins, raised our hands and spoke up about how hard it was for us. There were a lot of things, more than dinner time, that were just hard about the events, especially for part-time workers who had to work a weekend and try to figure out their schedule for the next week. They didn't get overtime. So I think the pastors were kind of shocked at that response in that moment. The idea that one of the pastors had was, is there something that we can gift you to make up for it? And a gift card <laughs> was mentioned as a possible option that uh, they could they could provide us to, you know, take us out for dinner or treat us to a spa day. Yeah. Yeah. So that is when all the admins sat down and uh, talked about it. And eventually we came to the idea of writing the letter instead. We all sat down in our admin room that was called many different things um, during many different points of our career there. But cube room, coffee shop, admin room. <laughs> Storage room, storage room, Christmas tree room, Christmas tree room. <laughs> weird inflatable stuff from summer baptism yeah. festival. Oh man, there, there's some good stories there. So we sat down and there was just this unspoken sense of this idea of a gift card or something similar. Just it felt very demeaning. I think we all felt that. And when we started talking about ideas, we, we didn't want to make up dinner for forgetting to provide us sustenance accommodations. We, 
We wanted to see real change happen for the future so that this this kind of thing wouldn't happen or if it happened, you know, there was accountability. So it didn't take us long to come up with the idea to write a letter with our honest requests, nor do I remember it taking very long to come to an agreement about what mattered most to us, which was clear policies and better communication. And then one admin volunteered to take a stab at writing and drafting the letter, which we reviewed. And not long after that, I think it was sent off to the executive team. There was a lot of thought and care put into the letter itself during the drafting process, us going back and forth. Is this translating the way that we want it to? Is it clear? And is it also loving towards the executive and leadership team? Yeah. We didn't, we weren't writing this to guilt trip them or make them feel like they were horrible bosses. Really, we honestly believe that these changes would benefit them as well. Mm-hmm. And the whole and the whole church. It, it would create unity. Yeah. It was our team. Wow. Well, Hannah and I kind of know that firsthand because the admin who put all your thoughts on paper actually showed it to us and asked us because we were directors at that point. Is this fair? Is this respectful? Right. And we were both like, yeah. I, I was like, one, awesome decision to actually use this on something that would benefit the entire staff and the entire you know community we're serving rather than taking a yeah. day off or whatever. And two, we're like, if anything, you're too polite. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, um, I was sharing with Hannah this morning that last night was the first time that I reread the letter since it originally was written and sent off. I jumped into it thinking, oh God, what did we write? I can't really remember. Because because of the aftermath of what happened, so the, re- the response. So going into it, I read it out loud to myself and I and I got to the end and I was like, that was actually very reasonable and tame. And there wasn't any point that I felt, oh, it was very... We crossed a line. Yeah, no, it was... If I had read that in, I don't know, my job now, there would have been no emotional response. It would have been, yes. Thank you. <laughs> this for is very me. professional. Let's work on it. Yeah. <laughs> One of the issues I remember that this proposal was really addressing was availability, like the expectation of that 24-7 availability, even when you were in a role that could be, you know, 20, 30, or 40 hours per week. Yeah. What were your experiences with that what did what did you experience and then like what did you observe from sort of the admins you were working with my whole time being there I was a full-time employee so I felt privileged to have a full-time job because it allowed me much more flexibility stability and resources that my part-time coworkers didn't have that being said we always joke that full-time employees would work more like 60 hours and part-time employees would work 40 hours So uh, we put in a lot of unpaid hours above and beyond labor laws, for sure. The biggest example of this for me is summer youth camps. I, uh, at the time, I never bothered to work out how many hours I actually was putting into those camps. Mm -hmm. Um, But last night, I decided to do some math. I I picked the longest camp, the five-day camp, just to see, so... Let's just say I work 7 to 11.30 at night. That's 17 hours per day. That's about 85 hours total. And that doesn't include the days leading up to the camp, which were more than eight-hour days. They're probably more like 12-hour days. So I probably worked about, let's just say, 140 hours for that one camp. So that means that I should have taken three weeks of comp time off for just that camp but usually I could only afford one week off because the next camp was coming up or because you know you had to get back to I had to do yeah I had to do my work so we've already alluded to this a bunch but basically the male pastors and directors who received this letter generally were not happy about it they were pretty upset right why do you think they got so upset I think everyone on the pastoral and leadership team got upset for different reasons. I think some were probably upset about the actual things being asked for. I think some had their heath feelings hurt. I think for some, this was also their first time hearing it. And so um, it left them feeling a little shocked, I think, 
So this is the part of the story where kind of Hannah and I got more exposed to it. A member of the executive team, one of the pastors, got the letter and he decided to bring it to our pastor director meeting for us to talk about as a group without the admins there. But what really struck me immediately was that the discussion we had was about everyone's personal and emotional, like it was a family talk very much. It wasn't, oh, let's discuss these issues the admins raised or why these issues aren't valid. It was this hurts and this is why. This is upsetting and this yeah. is why. I think one of the reasons that these these questions and concerns were raised in this way was because of the dynamic relationally between these male pastors and female mm-hmm. lower level staff. A group of women who did not feel like their voice would be heard because we were shown that it wasn't heard in these spaces found a way to have a professional letter written up with really specific outcomes with no emotion behind it brought to the proper head of staff for unity across the board so we wouldn't have resentment with our leadership. And instead, the very thing that we were having an issue with, which with, within that dynamic, flared was that up. It, it flared up. It became a personal issue between these men in leadership and the women underneath. And the few women that were represented there, Eileen and myself, we had experienced it. So we were like definitely ready to advocate and find healthy solutions. But the other women that were there didn't see it as an issue because they didn't have that same dynamic with people working underneath them. Right. And so it was like this weird, divided lack of representation. And I know these the women behind writing the letter were working so hard to speak so professionally and emotionally neutral so that their voices would be heard. And instead it was taken as complaining and as audacity. And it was like absolute audacity. How dare you? It really, truly was. And I remember being upset that we were talking about it in that space because I remember when we were talking to the group of people who were putting it together, they wanted it to be done like discreetly and professionally. And instead we were turning it into like, what what are group feelings about this private letter that is not addressed to these people? One of the admins I talked to about this recently described it as a breach of trust, right? Because it was essentially an HR, you could attach the word complaint to it. Um, The posture was, I think, quite different because you were asked, was an HR complaint that went to the only manager who was there to receive it Mm -hmm. in the summertime. HR director was gone, lead pastor was gone, Mm -hmm. other members of the executive leadership were gone. And that individual's reaction was to take it to the wider pastor director group to and vent. have to vent about it. Can I just jump in? Because yeah. this is my this is not my first time hearing the recount of this meeting. Obviously, I wasn't there because I was an admin and I was on vacation. Another problem. Right. We asked for better communication and instead they, <laughs> they <laughs> talked behind our backs. But what's really discouraging about hearing it from this perspective of how it actually was handled is if they had issues of what was said, you know, let's say the the one, the pastor that was given the letter had an issue with something that was said, they could have asked us for clarification. So we were never asked questions about the letter yeah. from my memory. So all that to say, I think the response in this way was very reactive and there wasn't additional context given mm-hmm. that would have been helpful, I think. That's all very true. Also happened pretty quickly. Like it was taken immediately to the pastors and directors. I think another issue with how the recipients of the letter received it was this sense that they were being called out for not being able to care for you without those policies. The implicit suggestion being that they weren't good leaders. And for me, that comes back to that sort of we're a family versus we're a business or an organization. In some ways, a church is very different from a business, but I don't think policies are a dirty word in that context. And I think a lot of times they were received as such because it implied that we weren't safe enough to each other to get by without those policies. Mm -hmm. And so power differentials that were going to exist became gaping, such as between male-dominated pastor staff, female-dominated and support staff. So the way it was received was very telling to me about what kind of level of safety, I guess you'd say, there was for people in that dynamic speaking up about 
problems we were facing, which, you know, continued to be real for, I'd say, me and Hannah, even though we were directors at this point, was still something we needed. It was a safe space, to be honest, about challenges. I think this shows, like, that there wasn't that safety because it was decided for everybody what was wrong, kind of in that space and by individuals in that space, unspoken, without anything written down. It became unsafe to bring any future problems. Like, how in the world is that safe? Like, if you and I are witnessing, it's like, how would it be safe for me to go, like, I don't feel like my hours are being respected when it becomes a public discussion? How in the world is that safe? And if I'm watching this unfold. Yeah, I mean, this incident wasn't about us. Like, we weren't in the vulnerable position that the admins were in this situation, but I definitely learned a lot of what to expect. Oh, yeah. And then I I don't know what that communicated to the admins in terms of safety. Like, did you feel safe bringing issues forward going after this? I mean, that set a tone, right? So um, I think it made us cautious. I know it compromised the trust from what I heard of some of my male coworkers that they no longer trusted their admins in that same way because they are like, well, you're talking about me behind my back. It was no longer a safe relationship dynamic between admins and pastors. And honestly, because it was entirely women against predominantly men, it re-emphasized the lack of safety of women voicing a concern. I think this is a good point for me to just ask, why is this specifically a women's issue? Because we did have a couple male admins over the years, but this is the, truly is a shared experience for many staff members in nonprofits, in churches, to have too many hours on the table, to not have the proper advocacy, for us to not be abiding by a lot of just basic like protection policies. Why is this in particular an issue for women? I think that if a group of male admins had written the same letter, um, we you wouldn't have seen an emotional response from the male leadership team. I might also argue that a group of male admins wouldn't actually have to write the letter in the first place. I think men succeed better in the system, especially white men. I think men are heard the first time, men are believed, and they're taken seriously. So I think even... The- you know, the fact that we as women were addressing real, serious, you know, systemic issues within our staff, the fact that we were offered a gift card in exchange meant that they really didn't hear us. I also think that if a male admin had been a part of the group at the time, the male leaders, I'm just assuming, but I think this is a fair assumption, would have gone to him specifically to ask and talk about this and not to the women in the group because we were unsafe and unreliable sources. Yeah, I think you could even go back to why is there a male-dominated pastoral staff and a female-dominated support staff in the first place? Because we do have a gender hierarchical position. And I think, I know based on, you know, doing some research and reading studies and my own experiences is that there is a deep-rooted pathway for men to those upper-level roles that doesn't exist for women. So I don't think we had a female-dominated support staff and a male-dominated pastoral staff because just men want to be pastors and women want to be admins, or women work in administration until they're married and then leave the workforce. I think we are groomed to those two spheres in the church ministry context. At our church, we were just embracing things like women teaching pastors, women in pastoral positions that weren't specific to women or children. And then you could also start talking about what's expected of women, character, personality, and sort of like interrelational-wise, everything from like tone policing to, as you were talking about, the idea of women being hysterical or nurturing, right? There's a lot about the admin role that is nurturing by nature. You're supporting your boss, your department. And it's very easy for that to become stereotypically subservient and the expectations that are put on you to be stereotypically subservient. And that, I think, feeds into this idea of breaking out of that nurturing, serving box as, oh, you're being insubordinate right now. 
Yeah, if you don't fit the mold of being submissive or even docile, which yeah. sounds terrible, but true, if you don't fit the mold of like, oh, I'm happy being a woman volunteer for the child care program or, you know, like, then there really isn't a place for you. And we've we've talked about like how our church in particular was rather progressive based on, on what we professed as what we stood for. And within that space of like, we can go to protests and be supported, we can speak out and like, I mean, we had folks that were, our groups from our church like went to like the border to protest like issues of like when they're trying to build a wall, we did BLM marches, we're doing all these things. We're being told to do revolutionary justice oriented things. And it, it was a confusing space to be in as a woman going like, maybe I'm being injustice in this way. It felt out of place when we were so justice and equality oriented in all of these other ways, what made it really emotionally difficult and even more unsafe. We could go to prison for protesting BLM stuff, but we could not say like, I'm being mistreated in the workplace safely. Yeah. And I would say that adds to the confusion for me, at least it added to the confusion and sort of presented another limit to advocating for myself to see our church being so active in social justice issues, but this women's issue not really being taken seriously as one of those things was like, well, am I? Am, am I experiencing marginalization? Like, it's hard. This is really hard. But I had a real reticency to call it that because I'm like, well, this is a church that cares about justice. This is just, it cares so much about embracing the other. Why do I feel so othered? So what was the conclusion of the meeting with the pastors and directors? Was it mostly venting or was there an actual call? Oh, it was, it was very much venting. There was a call to action, which I found very disturbing. The pastor leading the meeting asked all the pastors and directors to have a conversation with their admin. One on one. Yeah. One on one to resolve this issue. The how <laughs> was not necessarily suggested, but I just remember being horrified because it was putting things back into the problematic dynamic with you know no balance and if it like was truly unsafe like and you have the person like who's making some unsafe choices coming at you going like do you have a problem with me and you feel unsafe you go like no i don't i don't have a problem so not long after this pastor director conversation happened staff got a letter from her lead pastor who had come back from being away and he called a special meeting of our staff. And in that email, he said something like, I want to make sure we don't give the enemy a window to create division or discord among us. And, you know, he pointed back to like, okay, despite the fact that we're facing challenges, we're doing some really beautiful things at our church and that we love each other and we want to be the best team we can be. But the reason I bring that up is because we had that conversation with Connie Baker in a previous episode, please go listen to it if you haven't, of this idea of unity being leveraged to sort of move away from having some hard conversations because they look like conflict, which can then translate to, oh, it looks like disunity. I was a little bit discouraged by that whole like, oh, what the enemy is going to do here is try to create disunity. And it being so easy to receive that as like, oh, I should probably stop advocating for myself now because it'll create disunity, it'll create disunity and that's like the enemy, which is the worst thing. <laughs> I'm blown away by like the the, the fact that it, it was so clearly misconstrued and misheard that it it elicited just this emergency that we needed to make a spiritual issue. Now there our characters were in play, maybe our hearts. We we needed to pray about it. This is a prayer meeting about disunity over a letter of advocacy that the admins were trying to professionally send out. Which, spoiler alert, that's what the meeting was. It was a prayer meeting. We did not continue our discussion. I was never in a meeting where the admins as a group were given the opportunity to speak up about that letter. But we did have a prayer meeting. We met in our prayer chapel, sat in a circle, given a space of time to pray out loud if we wanted to. And then the lead pastor did the rest of the praying. Shortly after that prayer meeting, I asked the admin who documented and first presented the proposal to her superior what did you think of that as a resolution what did you think about the prayer meeting and this is a woman who's on a pastoral track she's not flippant about prayer as a 
an important spiritual practice and a meaningful, valuable thing for a community to do. But her response was, I'll never forget it. Prayer can be manipulative as a managerial tool. And I think it kind of was in this case. I wouldn't put that intention on our leadership, on our staff. I do not think there was an an intention to be manipulative, but I think at the end of the day, it was. I was doing some reading about women in politics and public service, and it led me to this sociological study by Mina Chikara, who's an associate professor of psychology at Harvard University, and Susan Fisk, who's a professor at psychology and public affairs at Princeton University. And the study's called Warmth, Competence, and Ambivalent Sexism. So, <laughs> a couple things that seem to track here. One is ambivalent sexism theory, which is a theoretical framework that suggests that sexism has two subcomponents to it. Hostile sexism, which is a combative ideology maintaining that men ought to have more power than women do, and it's characterized by the concern that women might usurp men's power in the future. Then there's benevolent sexism, which is an ideology that views women as subordinate, best suited for traditional low-status roles, and characterized by the idea that women need to be protected, cherished, and revered for their virtue. I mean, sound like complementarian doctrine to anyone? When it comes to benevolent sexism in practice, instead of using brute force, dominant groups, so in this case men, endorse ideologies that offer help and protection to subordinates to justify the hierarchy of their system. So paternalistic ideology, women are protected, cherished, and valued for their virtue, and they're given benefits for adhering to the hierarchy. A head covering. A head covering. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. So within the structure of benevolent sexism, the subordinate group kind of has two options. Mm -hmm. One, you go along with the arrangement and receive the benefits of maintaining the status quo of that hierarchy. But what happens with that is the dominant group members are free to assume that the subordinate group members consent to what's going on, right? Everything's fine because they're not hearing any pushback. Sure, sure. So that's one way we could go. Mm -hmm. If the subordinate group members reject the benefits, though, the dominant groups tend to react with hostility. That's where the hostile sexism comes into play. In other words, backlash. All the benefits that are reserved for women who stick to the traditional gendered behavior go away and are replaced with backlash. Sure. So mapping that to sort of the admin appreciation proposal example, if you will, the admins were offered a benefit. Hey, thank you for all your work. We know it was a hard season. Love to give you a gift card. Love to give you a day off. Love to give you a nice dinner. Instead of receiving that, let's say, patronizing (laughs) assistance, you guys instead challenge the status quo by saying what would really make us feel valued is an improvement of our circumstances. It kind of maps to that experience a little bit, which is interesting. Another thing the study said, which I thought was interesting, was the double-edged nature of patronizing discrimination is precisely what makes benevolent sexism so insidious. It does not seem overtly sexist, and in many cases is seemingly beneficial to the recipient. God, I mean, I think that's why my mind gets so foggy looking back at stuff like this. It's confusing. In the moment, in staff meetings, I felt like I was being cared for Mm -hmm. until I walked away and thought, huh, I think I was just spiritually manipulated. But I don't know. I have to settle this meeting and move on now. Yeah, a lot of this was just, I mean, for me, helpful. It's reinforcing that you're not crazy. No, this is an observable way to enforce hierarchy. Right. The the last line of that double-edged nature of patronizing discrimination is that perpetrators may even think they are helping recipients. They believe it. Yeah, they they believe it. They're sincere, you know? Yeah. It's not oppression with intent. Right. I think there are blinders. I think there's entitlement there. But I think there is a sincere belief that this is how we care for women. Right. That's what makes it very confusing. The other rubric they talked about was warmth versus competence. In hierarchical structures, which at a national level, our society continues to be one, you know, there's still a wage gap. Mm -hmm. There's still 
underrepresentation of women in most public sectors of life. Benevolent sexism rewards women who are in traditional roles by attributing more socially desirable traits to them, such as patience and especially warmth. So what the study posited was, in essence, warmth is a consolation prize for renouncing competition with men for social power. When women transgress traditional gender norms of femininity by taking on a non-traditional role, one way to penalize their gain in status or their competition is to cast their behavior in a negative light. The positive and socially desirable traits for men are competence and things that demonstrate that you are in control of your emotions, your your work, your life, Mm -hmm. if you will. So when women go after competence as traits they want to display and be respected for, Mm -hmm. what often happens is they are perceived as less warm, which is Mm -hmm. the more socially desirable trait for women in hierarchical Mm -hmm. environments. Mm -hmm. So it's like this exchange of respect, of gaining respect in exchange of being liked less. Interesting. It makes me think of a little bit when we did some strength finders i cried when i got my strength finders i did too i i cried i felt like so upset i based on my experience at this job is how i was answering these questions that were Mm -hmm. given to us to find the results of your strengths and i felt like my strengths ended up translating to me at the time as like i just do whatever i'm told to do and i'm very efficient and I remember this woman in my life, since she was a um, pretty significant role model in my life in high school, I shared what my strengths were with her. And she came back with me and said, oh, yeah, most women are like fit into the helper role. But my strengths are X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I'm a little bit outside of the mold. And I, I don't want to be perceived as that. But that totally tracks. That's what irks me about the argument of, well, there are distinctions between men and women. Like, even as we were shifting as a church from complementarianism to what they called mutualism, which looks like egalitarianism, but part of the reason they didn't go with egalitarianism is because they wanted to continue to honor Mm -hmm. the inherent distinctions Mm -hmm. between men and women. Mm -hmm. It's like, yeah, some of those are observable of like, okay, biological sex, but that's not the end of it in most of Western evangelical culture. There are distinctions that are underdefined that we believe in between men and women. And a lot of those do inform our complementarianism and our hierarchical Mm -hmm. positions. Totally. But what I think is really wrong with that is we haven't done the work of uncovering how much of that are the societal scripts that we've been taught to follow after generations of sexism and hierarchy and patriarchy. You know, I've had so many men say to me even recently, yeah, but there are distinctions between men and women. You put a man and a woman in this situation, of course the man is going to do better. Like, that's just, that's just the distinctions. You know, it's like, no, if you unpack how much our current world was designed for men over women, just as it was, you know, designed for white men Mm -hmm. over men of color, Mm -hmm. that really unpacks a lot of, and you know, disintegrates a lot of these gender distinctions that we so wildly believe in yeah as a woman you have to reckon with the own your own misogyny mm-hmm. yeah that yeah you just have learned growing up in the society that we have we'll go back to the the well of connie baker which continues to be yeah. the gift as a giving she talks about having to unpack patriarchy in herself and that we all have to continue doing it because it does affect things like strength finder tests yeah. you know yeah yeah 100 percent so when talking about women in the workplace, the study by Chikara and Fisk described that every day women face a paradox in performance settings. They have to provide strong counter-stereotypic information, i.e. that they are competent and have agency and control over their actions to demonstrate that they are qualified for high-status professional roles, but this deviation from prescribed gender norms can elicit a backlash. So it is kind of this catch-22, which, again, maps pretty well for me for the experience we're talking about today. You want to appear competent. You want to achieve those new levels of agency, which in this case was healthy work boundaries, healthy communication from your bosses, and accurate information about benefits. Crazy. But what you exchanged for that was some of that perceived kindness and warmth and patience Mm -hmm. that turns out was really valuable to that group of people. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And I mean, this happens everywhere. This isn't just in the church. Totally. By the way, this did not reference the church explicitly at all. Yeah. It did represent complementarianism as a worldview a couple times, but I was kind of struck by how this seemed to be talking about complementarian doctrine, but was not at all. It was just talking about sexism and hierarchy in general. But I did read this other article that was you know, called very bluntly The Truth About Sexism in the Church by Caroline M. Lewis, who is an author and professor of biblical preaching at Luther Seminary. She had some quotes that I thought also kind of applied to this issue and might kind of help us address like, well, what does a solution to this look like? What could be done differently? She said, sexism in the church lives and thrives because it can ground its reasons for uncritical acquiescence to sexism on biblical and theological basis. So, again, hierarchical doctrine is a little bit of an issue because it doesn't set the expectation for equality. That's me. That last part is me. Back to the quote. She said, reports of sexism are even downplayed and disbelieved because we all mean well in the church. And of course, you would never respond so unkindly as to call out sexist comments or make someone feel bad when they did not have negative intentions. Sexism is harder to navigate as a woman in ministry than a woman in business because we are expected to react even to unkindness with love. If we respond in such a way that our retorts are deemed unkind, we run the risk of all kinds of interpretive results. We're not very Christian, we're awfully sensitive, or we look or sound blunt, which is a particularly bad thing for a woman. It's acceptable for men. For women, it's not. And then she said something that I don't totally agree with, so I'm curious what you guys say when I think about it. She said, to take on sexism, the church would have to revise its script so drastically that it's simply not willing or cannot face the rewrites. Would you guys agree with that? I think it's imperative that the church considers a different framework. I do think it's unwilling. It does cost a lot. It would cost a lot of structural shifts. And I think most churches are unwilling. I don't think it's impossible. I think we've created a really complicated system that works one way, and it would cost a lot to shift that system. Mm -hmm. I do agree with that. I think the part that I may disagree with a little bit is that I don't think the willingness is lacking. I think it's more about revelation, being able to see it. Chikar and Fisk's study, they said, maybe these vertical assaults and collateral damages will attenuate, decrease, if they are documented and they enter the popular mind. Awareness, right? Awareness of these things. Particularly in the case of gender, they said, people tend to neglect the importance of social structure. Thus, it is critical that we highlight the structural conditions that give rise to gender inequity. So, again, awareness and a, you know, a good reevaluation of our overt hierarchical doctrines, our deeply rooted gender inequality, seems like one of the first steps, if you will. I feel cynical about it, but sure. <laughs> I keep thinking about the book that Eileen, you and I have read. That was Invisible Women? Yes. Thank yeah. You. <laughs> I sometimes feel disheartened because the system is just so ingrained. You know, in the book, she's talking about just simple studies being done to kind of break some of these ideas. And uh, it would take a simple survey of asking women. And like, it seems like such a simple solution of being able to collect that data. But there isn't a willingness to actually support going after that data. Right. So that's where I feel discouraged. Mm -hmm. I feel like there is solutions that people are talking about, but the system is so deep that that's where the willingness thing mm -hmm. comes in. And I want to believe that people are more willing. When it comes down to it, it's clear that they're willing to a point. Right. Yeah. Until it, Right. Threatens their stability. Or even if there is a willingness, the power is still in the men's court to be able to follow through right. with that. Yeah, that is and that is a challenge. You know, we're just back at the beginning then. I also think the whole idea, if they hear that there's a problem, they believe it, they see it, they don't know what to do, 
And they're not going to do anything until they can figure out what it is that they need to do. And so since they can't figure it out, they're not doing anything. And it's almost like this patriarchal rule of like, I have to actually do the saving. You're the damsel. I have to figure it out. And I do have to rescue you. And we're not asking for rescue. We're asking for partnership. It's like, Mm -hmm. if you have the upper hand, grab our hand and bring us up with you. Yes. We also don't even need to all have the solutions for us to move towards healthy possibilities, a different Mm -hmm. framework. Like we are learning as we go. If if we're believing that these systems and structures are so deeply rooted, then we have a lot of unlearning to do. Yeah, It doesn't mean we shouldn't do anything just because we don't know the right way. Sure. I think the right way is being figured out in real time. Sure. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's another thing to point out is will things get more equitable in our lifetime? Sure. Some progress will be made. Some steps will be taken. I think it's a multi-generational. I do. I mean, I I think that's fairly obvious. It's a multi-generational road. Well, I think that's a great place to land because in upcoming episodes, we're going to talk about the fact that in the church environment, we did see men realize that women need to be more empowered and some of the strategies that were put into place to try to tackle that and what our experiences and learnings have been from that. be a people who raise up the unheard voices of those around us, listening with curiosity, attentiveness, and patience. May we consider one another with wonder and dignity, living in gratitude, awe, and respect of one another at all times, rather than gratitude and awe being extended as an afterthought or a band-aid. There's space for all of us at the table of life, where all of our unique gifts and voices can mingle and entwine to build up the world into something new and beautiful together. Well, that wraps up another episode of Stained Glass Ceiling. Thank you so much for listening. We want to extend a special thank you to our dear friend Kenya for joining us this week and to Alan again for mastering. Today's episode features music from my album So Far So Long. And as always, we will list the resources mentioned in today's podcast in our show notes. We have more episodes coming up in the second season, so stay tuned and we will see you next week.